We're reading this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning from verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning verse 6. Paul has just been saying to the Corinthians that his message and his preaching, verse 4, were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that their faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Verse 6. We do, however, speak wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. <coughs> the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgment about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Thank you, Martin and Martin. Good morning. And well, let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this passage um, together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people now. We want to thank you that you are the God who has revealed himself to us. Otherwise, we, we could not know you. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for these words. And we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to understand these things. How we need your help, Lord. Amen. I'm spiritual, but not religious. And I wonder if you've heard people describe themselves to you in that way. I'm spiritual, but, but not religious. Seems like a pretty fashionable way of describing yourself, actually, culturally today. And it may be actually this morning, that's how you would describe yourself. Um, if so, it is wonderful to have you here. Thank you for coming. And uh, bear with me as I try to explain what somebody who describes themselves is actually, you'll have to, if this is you, you'll have to come and talk to me afterwards. 
about it. But here's what I think. Someone who describes themselves as spiritual but not religious is saying, they're saying this, I'm, I'm spiritually open. I believe that there's more to this world than sort of dust and atoms. I'm open to the idea of God or some kind of transcendent reality, if you want to use some flashy words. But, but I've rejected formal religion and I'm following my own path. Well, for those who describe themselves in that way, what Paul has to say here in chapter two is going to come as a bit of a shock. Because what he's saying is this. Ultimately, if you don't have the spirit of God, you are not spiritual. And you have no way of understanding spiritual realities. It's quite a, a stark, bold claim to make, isn't it? Have a look at verse 14 that uh, Martin just, just read to us from our passage. Chapter 2, verse 14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So we'll see as we go through. For, for Paul, there are basically two types of people in this world today. Those who have the spirit of God, spiritual people, and those who don't. And what Paul does in this chapter is spell out what true spirituality really is. And he's doing it because the Christians he's writing to suffer from delusions of grandeur. Do you know what I mean by that phrase, the delusions of grandeur? In their minds, these Christians at this church, they think they're better than they really are. In their contemporary Greek culture at the time, power, influence, wisdom, spirituality were all highly prized things. And in, in trying to persuade someone round to your point of view, having amazing rhetoric, having complicated, impressive arguments, speaking powerfully and eloquently, that was what was all important culturally for them at the time. Perhaps even more so than whether what you're saying is actually true. The way you say was all important. Having power, having influence, being impressive, having wisdom, being spiritual. These would have been some of the ways that the guys in this church would have thought of themselves. Those contemporary cultural values around them, bleeding through into, into their values as, as a church. And what we see throughout these early chapters in 1 Corinthians is Paul picking up on these words and ideas and, and throwing them back at them and, and, and redefining them biblically and, and from the gospel. So he's, he's effectively saying to them, you think you're wise and powerful, and you think that's a good thing from, from, from a worldly point of view. But this, this is, is God's wisdom. This is God's power, really. We looked at it uh, last week in chapter one. Chapter one, verse 18. Look how he describes God's wisdom here. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or a bit later on, verse 22, 24 of chapter one, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 
But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul's saying to this church, don't be squeezed into the mould of the world around you in your thinking, in your behaviour. Jesus first is, is what's all important. And this week, having thought about wisdom and last week, this week, spiritual, being spiritual is what he's, he's wanting to get at. They thought they were spiritual. In fact, uh, they had some pretty major hang-ups about the spirit. And uh, we'll see as we get into chapter 12 to 14, whenever we get to chapter 12 and 14, um, uh, some more specifics uh, about that. But here, he's wanting to, to, to get back to basics and, and spell out what true spirituality really is. He wants to, to lay the theological foundations, if you like, right here in chapter two. And he begins with wisdom again, but he links it in with, um, with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So last week, thinking about the, the content of wisdom, um, we saw the content of wisdom is Christ crucified. If you want to simplify it, what is God's wisdom? God's wisdom for Paul is Christ crucified. Last week, thinking about the content of, of wisdom. Today, he, he, uh, Paul looks at the, the nature of God's wisdom. So we'll think about the nature of God's wisdom and then think about what he says about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how in Paul's mind, the ministry of the Holy Spirit flows on from and is, and is interconnected with what he says on the nature of God's wisdom. So first of all, then, the nature of God's wisdom, verses um, 6 to 10, the nature of God's wisdom. He starts off with a negative uh, in verse 6 before going on to look at three aspects of, of God's wisdom. And uh, there they are on, on the screen. So the negative, first of all, right there in, in verse six. And uh, he said, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So he's saying it, the wisdom that, that he and the other apostles um, speak and preach is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. It's a pretty stark reality that he points out there in verse six, isn't it? Um, rulers of this age are coming to nothing. And of course, it's true. Historically, all rulers have already or one day will end up in a wooden box in the ground. Maybe some are long remembered, maybe some are quickly forgotten, but all rulers come to nothing. That's what we see historically. But Paul's got more in view than just rulers themselves. Worldly wisdom, the wisdom of this age moves on, gets forgotten, gets left behind too. But just think back to the uh, Atlantic slave trade, for example, and the horrific racism and exploitation that, that went on there. That was the, the accepted wisdom of that day is very different to now, isn't it? 
or think back to your grandparents' generation. Are there values and accepted social norms and, and wisdom that, that their generation held that actually make us cringe a little bit today? Well, I wonder what might our grandchildren cringe about when they look back at the accepted wisdom of our age today? We, by we, I mean society, culture in general, we delude ourselves into thinking that we're wise and progressive and all the rest of it. But are we really? One quick example. Um, on the one hand, we've seen lots of outrage at the sexual abuse in, in Hollywood and, and, and elsewhere, the whole Me Too movement. And rightly so, justice needs to be done and needs to be seen to be done. But what about, on the other hand, the, the porn industry, multi-billion dollar industry profiting from sexual slavery and exploitation? How can we be outraged at, at one type of sexual abuse on the one hand, but not the other, and just say, oh, it's you know freedom of expression and consenting adults and rubbish? Surely we can't be that naive. It's a justice issue, um, and I, I, it's, it's an issue I've been thinking about recently, and it's, it's, it's an issue that, as, as Christians, we need to stand and fight against. But it just highlights to me that it's the inconsistencies we see in, in the kind of perceived wisdom of our age. Back to 1 Corinthians, what Paul is saying, God's wisdom is not the wisdom of this age. I've been reading um, Andrew Wilson. He's a, a writer and pastor. Um, his book on 1 Corinthians, which, which is great. And he talks um, about um, rulers and wisdoms colliding at the cross. So at the cross of Christ, we see Caesar's worldly wisdom of, of military power and pride meet Jesus Christ's divine wisdom of humility and loving self-sacrifice clash together. The rulers of this world look to have won on, on Friday afternoon. But by Sunday morning, the Lord of glory is vindicated along with God's wisdom. God's wisdom is, is not of this world. The world, this world just cannot understand or get its head around it. It's the first thing he wants to say in, in this section. That's the, the negative thing. It's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Rather, first of all, it's, it's a secret wisdom. Verse 7. Now, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that had been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. It's, it's a secret um, or hidden wisdom. It's a mystery. And that seems a slightly odd or confusing thing for Paul to have to say. Um, he doesn't mean it in some sort of weird, magical, mysterious kind of sense. When Paul uses this word mystery or, or, or things that are hidden like this, he means something that has been hidden in God, but is now revealed in history through Christ and, and made understandable 
to us by the Spirit. That's what he's, he's saying in this, um, in this passage. Something that has been hidden but has now been revealed. The time is right. It's, it's revealed. So in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul uses this idea of mystery and things that are hidden and secret and, and being revealed. He uses that in connection with the truth that Gentiles, I mean, people who are, who are not Jewish, are now included in salvation because of all that Jesus has done. That was a mystery that was hidden, but now it's revealed. Now it's, um, it's revealed in history through Jesus and made understandable to us by the Spirit. It was hidden from view until, until now through Christ, revealed and made known. So this wisdom of God, Paul's saying, it's hidden. And also in verse 7, it's eternal. It's eternal. Building on that first point, um, do you see how he described it? Um, destined for our glory before time began. What an extraordinary phrase. Span, this, this little phrase spans all of history and eternity. God's wisdom is not like the wisdom of this age, which is temporary and will come to nothing. God's wisdom, Christ crucified, has been the plan since before time even began. It has been and always will be God's plan. It's eternal. There's a depth and solidity to God's eternal wisdom, unlike the wisdom of our age, which disappears like the morning mist. So in talking about God's wisdom, he says it's hidden, it's eternal. And thirdly, it's revealed. In verse 10, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. I guess we've touched on this already, but just to flesh it out a bit more, that God's wisdom, Christ crucified, is revealed. The natural human being simply cannot work it out by themselves. Verse 8, the rulers of this age at the time of Jesus, none of them understood the wisdom of God. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus, the Lord of glory, as Paul says. Verse 9, Paul quotes, and he says, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. No eye, ear, mind can see, hear, or understand God's wisdom. We might think that we can forge our own path to, to get to know God on our own terms, in our own way. But the reality that Paul paints for us here is, is that we cannot understand God's wisdom or, or know him personally without the Spirit of God first revealing it to us. God's wisdom is revealed wisdom. And that flows on to his next main section, uh, looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So verses 10 to 14, Paul moves on to looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there's three main things he draws out about the ministry of the Spirit in relation to the wisdom of God. And there they are on the screen. He, he searches, he understands, and he imparts or, or, or he teaches. And to help us get our heads around this, 
And I want you to imagine a writer writing a book. Some of you, probably lots of you involved in publishing in some way or another here as I look out. Um, imagine the process a writer goes through when they're writing a book. This is um, uh, one of John Stott's analogies. Think about the process they go through. First up, they search, they research, they read, they study, they gather, they get everything all together. Then they understand, they kind of assimilate, they critically analyze everything that they've gathered together. They make sense of it, they, they pull it together, they, they, they understand it. And then after that point, they, they write, they publish. They teach, they, they communicate all that they've been thinking about. And that's the sort of image of what's going on here as Paul describes the, the ministry of, of the Holy Spirit. In verse 10, he searches everything, even the deep things of God. Isn't that a beautiful turn of phrase? The Spirit searches even the deep things of God made me think of um, the Mariana Trench, the deepest um, ocean, seven miles deep. Apparently, if you put Mount Everest at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the peak would still be um, 2,000 metres, 7,000 feet below sea level. That's pretty deep, isn't it? But God is infinite, ineffably sublime, as the um, hymn writers put it. There are no words to describe just how infinite and amazing and majestic our God is. The Holy Spirit searches the infinity of God like a high-powered telescope reaching out into the vast expanse of space. The Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God. Only he can do that. Isn't that amazing? The Spirit searches and he understands. Verse 11, no one understands the thoughts of God um, except the Spirit of God. You see what Paul's saying there in verse 11? No one knows what you are thinking on a human level unless you choose to reveal what you're thinking. And the other week at Explode, which is our, our kids' And Friday night group, we were looking at Mark chapter 2, um, where Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking when he forgave the sins of the paralyzed man who had dropped down in front of him. We did an experiment to see if anybody could work out what Greg was thinking. No one got remotely close. Turns out he was sat at the back wondering how many cockroaches would fit in the bucket we had up at the front. <laughs> What insight into, into his mind. No, no one knows the mind of Greg, I think, was the fruit of, of that little experiment. But you see what Paul's saying here? God alone knows what God is thinking. It's true on a human level. It's true on this, uh, this divine level. Only the spirit of God understands and knows. On our own, this is the case that he's consistently building up. On our own, we've got no idea. We cannot know. We are utterly dependent on him revealing himself to us. And so chapter 2, verse 12. 
we have re- uh, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So not only does the spirit search, understand, but he imparts, he teaches. Verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with spirit taught words. The very gospel message that Paul preaches to these Corinthians, he, he preached with words taught him by the spirit. So do you see as this case that he's, he's building up? The bottom line is that there are, there are two types of people, those who have the spirit and those who don't. As we kind of pull it all together, verse 14, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. Ultimately, Paul was saying, if you don't have the spirit of God, you are not spiritual and you have no way of understanding spiritual realities. You do not accept the things of God. They are foolish to you. You cannot understand them because they are discerned by the spirit who gives us the understanding. It's stark, isn't it? But conversely, if you do have the spirit of God, well, verse 12, we have received um, the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. What an extraordinary, extraordinary thing to say. And it's a stark contrast he paints. And um, and verse 16 is, is, is great. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, making the point from the Old Testament that of, of how impossible it is for us to understand God in and of ourselves. But yet, as Christians who've been freely given the gift of the Holy Spirit, as a free gift of grace, we can now say we have the mind of Christ. His thoughts are now, now no longer out of reach for us. Our minds are, are changed, if you like. We have a new mind, the mind of Christ. Isn't that extraordinary? And given that central truth, that um, the extraordinary truth that he's, he, he's been saying, there's two things I want us to focus on by way of application. And the first is this, that as Christians, we don't need to feel inferior to anyone claiming to be spiritual. As Christians, we don't need to feel inferior to anyone claiming to be spiritual. Because as Christians, we have the spirit of God who searches the deep things of God. We have the mind of Christ. Now, in the past, and people have used these verses slightly out of context to to argue for a, a kind of super spiritual elitism. But from what Paul says here, that the force of the argument here, there's no place for any kind of super spiritual elitism. There's no degrees of super spirituality. There's no need for us to, to feel 
inferior. <laughs> or for us to feel superior either. Because as we see, this, the Holy Spirit is a gift. And he enables us to understand and reveal uh, and, and, and he reveals the truth of the gospel to us. There's nothing that we do here in this chapter. It's all about what, what God does by his spirit, through his spirit, helping us to understand the truth of the gospel. And once we start removing the wisdom of God, as, as Paul defines it, the cross of Christ, Christ crucified. Once you start removing the cross of Christ from the ministry of the spirit, that's when we start to get into trouble. These Corinthians were perhaps pursuing a wisdom that is not about Christ crucified and a spirituality that, that didn't have Christ crucified at, at, at its centre. And because of that, there's arguments and squabbles and lawsuits and incest and all sorts, which we'll get into in the subsequent weeks as we go through this letter. The cross is emptied of its power. There's no changed life, no changed minds, just worldly wisdom, no humility and self-sacrificial love, just power, influence. Well, what Paul, from what Paul says here, about the ministry of the spirit and about God's wisdom. There's no place for feeling inferior or superior. We have the mind of Christ. Christian, this morning, you have the mind of Christ by grace, freely given to you. So that's the first um, implication, application to draw out. But as we, as we finish up, I want us to think through what this means for our evangelism. What this means for our evangelism. And I want us to see just how central the Holy Spirit is to all that's going on in what Paul was saying. Paul says he preaches the gospel with words taught him by the Spirit. And as we saw last week in those first few verses of chapter two, not depending on worldly wisdom or sounding impressive or all those kinds of things. He preaches the gospel with words taught him by the spirit. And he says their understanding of the gospel, their ability to understand is entirely dependent on the spirit, the Holy Spirit revealing it to them. The Holy Spirit is central to all of it, the preaching, the understanding the response, all of it. How central is he in our evangelism? What is it we're depending on as we seek to talk to our friends about God's wisdom of Christ crucified? Perhaps we don't talk to our friends because we're all too aware of the foolishness in the world's eyes of the message of Christ crucified. And so we think to ourselves, well, there's, there's no way they're going to respond in a good way. So we don't even try. Perhaps we've had many conversations over many years with people we care about very deeply. And it just seems to be like water off a duck, duck's back. Impossible. There's just no way we're, it's getting through. There's, there's no way they're going to respond. And so we lose heart and, and we lose hope. But what's the encouragement 
for us here. I think the big encouragement is, is that it's not down to us. It's only the spirit of God who can work the miracle of opening blind eyes and softening hard hearts to finally see and understand and respond to the good news of the gospel. Isn't that wonderfully liberating? So why not as a, a kind of application of, of what we're thinking about, why don't you make sure you have conversations with other Christians where you can tell each other how you became Christians? Perhaps even over a coffee um, before whilst all the kids are running around, tearing around the field later. Um, let's, let's be sharing our stories of how God saved us and rescued us and brought us into a relationship with him. There's, there's nothing more encouraging and I love hearing those, those stories. Perhaps maybe even in, in your home groups, um, if you alternated it each week, one person in the group shares their story each week, then for a few weeks you're, you're going to be hearing wonderful stories of how God has been working and saving and bringing people to, to know him. Wouldn't that be encouraging and helpful? It's not down to us. Isn't that liberating? And shouldn't that drive us to our knees in prayer? Our prayerfulness is the acid test of, of who or what we're really depending on in most things and especially in evangelism. If we don't think we need God, we won't pray. If deep down we think it's all about us, well, why do we need to pray? I suggest that as a church family together, this could be a really crucial thing for us. It's what I'm particularly convicted about. What does our prayerfulness or lack of it show about what we're really trusting in when it comes to evangelism? I want to finish up with um, a, a quick story um, of uh, 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 the previous church that Mary and I were involved in back, back in Oxford. Um, the sister of, of one of the, the guys in the church was kind of on the fringes of, of the church a little bit. And uh, one particular week, we were talking about um, a book group that we were going to start over the summer, looking at a book called Serving Without Sinking by um, John Hindley. And um, she kind of overheard what we were talking about and was thinking, oh, can, can I come and be part of this book group? And we were sort of all looking a bit nervously together, not really sure where she was spiritually and thinking, well, uh, we hadn't thought to ask her and invite her along that this might be good for her or any of that sort of thing. So we just sort of said, sure, why not? Um, and in God's goodness, reading that book, coming along to those meetings was, was what he wonderfully used to open her eyes to the, to the truths of who God really is. And, and well, that was nothing to do with us. You know, we didn't even think what was to, to invite her along to that sort of thing. Um, as, as so often happens, God is out working by his spirit and we're sort of struggling to, to keep up with where he's going, what he's doing. Well, let's um, pray. Um, time is gone. Let's pray and ask for God's help in this. Picking up some, uh, some, some words from the start of this chapter. 
For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your grace and your mercy. How we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. In our brokenness, in our lostness, in our seeking to forge our own path apart from you. While we were your enemies, you loved us. You sent your own son to die for us so that we could be brought into relationship with you. And you've given us your spirit in to enable us to understand that and to speak that truth to others. And we pray that as a church, you would help us to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that you would mould us into being a, a family who are on mission together and who are depending on you, crying out to you for our friends, our family to come to know you. And for you to be working by your spirit, doing the impossible work in hearts and minds. Please, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Amen. Amen.